Welcome to Movie Moments, discussing the greatest movies of all time, plus all the newest films in theaters and streaming. Like us, rate us, share us. Here are your hosts, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry. Well, hello again, everybody. It is Movie Moments. Mike Rags and Chuck Curry discussing discussing the greatest movies of all time each and every week, whether you listen to the podcast or listen live on your favorite radio station. Big show today. A couple of huge interviews my friend Chuck Curry did, including one with the great director Eli Roth uh, promoting the release of uh, Thanksgiving on digital. Uh, we'll talk to Eli Roth later on. And a composer, Lauren Balfey, will uh, join us on the show as well. I hope I'm saying his name right. If I'm not, I think Chuck Curry will correct me. Um, plus, you know, with those two interviews, we don't have a lot of time to discuss a uh, major category, but we are going to remember the life of a great uh, actor and, and football athlete, uh, Carl Weathers, who passed away over the last 24 hours or so. So Chuck and I will do a little special memoriam for uh, Carl Weathers, who, you know, we grew up with, uh, of course, uh, Apollo Creed. And uh, beyond Apollo Creed, though, he's he had some uh, great roles on uh, on the big screen, and we'll talk about them all in just a little bit, plus some movie news as well. Let's bring him in right now. Chuck, first and foremost, am I saying the composer's name right? Uh, actually, it's Balf. Uh, Balf. Ryan with Ralph. I'm the one who actually mispronounced it slightly when I did the interview, which I, I, I later apologized. But unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize when I was speaking to him. Having said that, he was a fascinating, unique, uh, humble, gracious uh, person. I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, spending 15 minutes of my life uh, speaking to him. Great interview. Really liked it. Well, we got some movie news coming up, but let's start with uh, releases this week. And in another universe, Argyle being released, a uh, big budget, lots of stars, lots of action. Um, probably wouldn't come out on February 2nd, but it does. And uh, if nobody goes to see it, does it even matter, Chuck? Well, you know, here's the thing. It's a $200 million movie. Um, it's sort of an aberration because it doesn't fit in the perennial wheelhouse of what uh would you what you would might consider uh, a slam dunk um this is a this is a gamble there's no doubt about what will not help this film mike is the reviews are not very good i think it's yeah. like 30 percent positive so 70 percent uh negative um we'll, we'll we'll see i mean obviously we root for every film to do well but i think it's going to be a tough sell to recoup it's two hundred million dollar budget, meaning it has to do around five hundred million dollars worldwide to break uh, even. And, and it's weird because fans with everybody that's in it, Matthew Vaughn's a great director. Kick yeah, ass he is and, absolutely. Um, no and, doubt. And, and you know, it, it has a feel of all those Kingsman movies. And Jesus, it seems like there's a Kingsman movie coming out all the time. Um, uh, and it, you know, it does star Bryce Dallas Howard, who we love from the Jurassic World pictures, and. And uh, Brian Cranston and Sam Rock. I mean, there's tons of stars, including Dua Lipa, uh, but really not much fanfare as far as theaters go. I, d I don't I don't see lines around the block for this one, uh, Chuck. And, you know, for for a movie of this size, I, I you know, I know it's streaming Apple Plus pretty instantly, too. So uh, they did produce it uh, and there's nothing else coming out to hit theaters. It, it's just a little surprising that there isn't. I don't know, droves trying to go to see this film and without good reviews, I guess we got to wait till Madam Webb and Bob Marley for people to get back into theaters on Valentine's weekend. Now, here's the thing. Madam Webb's tracking uh, as an, a little bit of an underperformer around uh, $25 million opening weekend, the Bob Marley movie, tracking a bit better, much to my surprise, around 30, 35. If you look at the marketplace in general, Mike, over the last few weeks, it's pretty, 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 been a pretty much a steady hole between Mean Girls and the Beekeeper. Beekeeper actually is overperformed and done extremely well. O audience reaction to that film is very positive, along with critical reaction for Jason Strayson movie, which is very positive. Here's a caveat. Beekeeper, I think uh, as of uh, Monday that just passed, uh, you could buy it. Uh, rented, I mean, for 19.99, it hit pay-per-view, which I believe is the 17-day window. That coming off a seven million dollar uh, weekend, which is very solid number. The one thing that is good with less movies in the marketplace, which was a given due to the writers and actors strike, we knew the first quarter of this uh, calendar year was going to be somewhat sparse with new releases. But a lot of these movies have very good holds. I mean, Beekeeper 
had like a 17% drop off week to week. That's an outstanding hold for an R-rated action film. Uh, if you look at the top 10, a lot of these films in the marketplace have very good holds. So that is a positive, meaning that uh, if a movie's in a theater, people want to go to the movies, they're going to have to sample something. So the movies that are currently in theaters are going to benefit by having less movies in a theater. I just want to say before we get into movie news, I was given a lot of thought to what you said on la last week's program about the reality of the way you get the industry healthy is that you probably got to have less theaters. And I do think uh, if there were half the screens in this country, which I hate to, to say that because I know people get hurt, theaters get hurt, but I, I do think that the overall market would get healthier with less screens overall. Thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I said it last week. I do that. That I'm not saying we can't get back to where we were, but in order to get there, you gotta you gotta downsize again, and you gotta make it the, the supply and demand right. You're you're supplying yep. too much, and the demand's yes. not there. That that's that's going to be a problem. Um, so uh, let's say, you know, we're going to talk Carl Weathers here in a little bit and we have two great interviews on the way. So let's not uh, waste any more time. Uh, what what uh, what movie news do you got that's uh, worth bringing up? By Red the way, Pitt. did you see the did you see the poster for Beetlejuice 2? Yeah, I, I like it. And I actually I think the title is very inventive. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Uh, yep. I think that's a great title. I like the poster. Uh, yep. you, you're going to start to see the ad, uh, ad campaign on social media slowly roll out for a uh, summer release. I think is there a Super Bowl commercial? Do we know that? I, I, I don't know. I don't know, uh, the, the exact Super Bowl commercials for what, uh, studios are going to, uh, do, but I have a feeling there's a good chance we're going to see it. I, I have a, a feeling there's a good chance we're going to see. Well, it. I'm I'm uh, sure we'll I'm sure we'll see like Dune Part Two. I'm sure Ghostbusters will be yeah. part of it. Uh, probably mm -hmm. Godzilla versus Kong. May, I mean, I I doubt they'll show Civil War, but some of the I think if might have a commercial right in the summer movie era. The, yeah, we think stuff so. We talked about maybe Planet of the Apes. Maybe we'll see Bad Boys Four. Considering the audience, I don't know. I'm always interested to see what they roll out during Super Bowl weekend as far as uh, new movies. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a five or six million dollar commercial, but it's the last bastion, Mike, of uh, of, um, of of a collective mass experience. You know, yep. you have 120 million people uh, watching that game so the, you know the five million dollars is a dice roll uh in many cases worth taking tim burton set to direct after uh he's just finished beetlejuice beetlejuice gonna direct a remake of attack of the 50 foot woman you know when i just read this yesterday and it was announced i said to myself um it fits in his wheelhouse but maybe a wheelhouse maybe 20 25 years ago it feels like a weird project to do in 2024 no <laughs> weird project to do for tim burton i mean that's uh, that seems like an yeah, it feels like a great it feels like it feels like a greta Ger, Ger, gershon uh a Gerwig, greta yeah Gerwig. greta Gerwig movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah it feels like something she would want to tackle yeah i mean it's good that he's let's just say this he's working still uh and, it, and that's good right because a lot of these guys kind of go away it's good that he keeps you know trying to stay somewhat relevant and puts out new stuff yeah, I, and, and does stuff very, that's different yeah. than we normally would see. From I him, agree, is, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I think what you, do you know, think? What, we would normally say, all right, well, he's probably going to do Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, right? That would that would make the most sense. But this is good yes. that he's not doing that, and and that you know uh, that he's so expanding his horizons. Yes, uh, Brad. By the Pitt, way, did you see uh, Brad Pitt is going to be yeah in another uh, Tarantino movie, right? Yeah, uh, it's uh, the movie critic, which is. Uh, uh, movie Tarantino's set to tackle. Uh, you know, speculation could this be the last Tarantino film? He sort of has hinted at that. This will be the third time Brad Pitt uh, is teaming up with uh, Tarantino. Once upon a time in Hollywood was the last, and he did uh, uh, Glorious Bastards. Inglori yeah. Glorious Bastards. It's a good pairing. You know, many pe people are speculating Pitt will play the lead as the movie critic. I mean, does Pitt? I mean, he's a great actor. Uh, he'd have to fit into a film critic. Uh, in the 1970s, I'm actually looking forward to this film. Yeah, Mike, well, and I'm, we I'm glad you know he he hinted that he was going to retire on Bill Maher's show about a year or so ago, and it's good that Quentin Tarantino's just you know, like who are we kidding? Yeah, keep making movies. Let's go. Now the cast uh, has been set with a bunch of unknowns for SNL 1975. Jason Reitman's 
film about the first airing and behind the scenes of a Saturday Night Live way back in 1975. I think it's a good direction to go with a bunch of unknown, unknown actors in the roles of, you know, Bellucci, uh, Jane Curtin, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radna, uh, Lorraine Newman, and, and Garrett Ma- Morris. I, I love the idea of, of this movie. And I think this is what movie making is about. Give us a story that's interesting, a time in a place that we want to uh, revisit. Uh, I'm looking forward to this film very much, Mike. And I wish more studios would embrace projects like this, SNL 1975. Yeah, looking forward to that for sure. See the Lorne Michaels, uh, where it all started. Uh, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of the show. I've been rewatching all the episodes. Uh, I'm currently in the heyday years of the Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman years. And and uh, it, it, it's amazing when you rewatch these shows uh, it, it shows you how America's changed. Let's just say that Let, uh, some of the jokes, some of the wording, some of the, uh, oh, uh, no doubt, no you doubt. know, it, it's just, uh, if you want a time capsule of how we've evolved as a society, whether it be, you know, racism and, and disabled people and all that stuff, watch Saturday night live through the years and how, you know, it slowly, slowly gets more politically correct as it goes along. And, and that's one of the fascinating things along with the great laughs, but, uh, to see it all begin again, uh, in a movie, uh, I'm 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 on board, no doubt about it. And I, I think you know what you just said, you know, about watching this stuff that's uh, decades now old. You know, I I hawking back and talked on this program about watching all you know Siskel and Ebert shows and and watching David Letterman and Andy Kaufman stuff. I, I find it extremely reflective, and I, I find it inspiring in many ways that we have the ability to to do this in archive. I think it's that I think is a really cool thing. One other thing, this day in uh, TV history this week, February 1st, 1976, the premiere of Rich Man, Poor Man on ABC, which was really the start and the pinnacle of the heyday of miniseries a year later. You had Roots followed by miniseries like uh, Winds of War and the Thornburns. But, you know, Nick Nolte, Peter Strauss uh, and uh, William Smith, who played one of the greatest villains of all time, uh, Falcon Nettie, uh, to this day still gives me nightmares that uh, character, but I love me some rich man, poor man, way, way back in the uh, day. All right. To our listeners out there on the bingo card, if you had uh, this day in TV history, rich man, poor man, mark it off. Uh, so probably next week, all you'll need is all in the family and you'll finish that bingo board. Uh, good is thing that all I, we good, have? Yes, that's all we had. Good thing. I didn't, good thing. This wasn't the, for uh, the, the, uh, the uh the this week in movie history of the wizard of oz you really would have hit me hard oh yeah well uh let's uh <laughs> let's move forward now with uh the great life and uh, career of uh, carl weathers who we learned yesterday passed away at the age of 76 in his sleep at his home in uh los angeles and of course you know before we were all introduced to him basically as apollo creed he had a great football career uh you know he, he started at long beach city college then he went to san diego state and then he got drafted he was in the uh the the profession he played pro football with the uh with the raiders some and uh he played some canadian football league so he he kind of you know jim, uh, jim brown kind of carved the path of what carl weathers probably wanted to do uh and sure. then um auditioned for apollo creed and you know chuck the rest is history. We're going to play a clip from a Sylvester Stallone that he posted on. Let's do this first. We'll play Stallone's clip. Um, he posted on Twitter and social media yesterday, kind of uh, his thoughts uh, and the shock of learning that one of his uh, first co-stars had passed away uh, overnight. Hello, everyone. Today is an incredibly sad day for me. I mean, I've, I'm so torn up. I can't even tell you. I'm just trying to hold it in because... Carl Weathers was such an integral part of my life, my success, everything about it. I I give him incredible credit and kudos because when he walked into that room and I saw him for the first time, I saw greatness, but I didn't realize how great. I never could have accomplished what we did with Rocky without him. He was absolutely brilliant his voice, his size, his power, his athletic ability, but more importantly, his heart, his soul. It's, it, it's a horrible loss. And I'm standing here in front of this painting because it was probably the last moment we were ever in the ring together and I'll never forget it. He was magic. 
And I was so fortunate to be part of his life. So, Apollo, keep punch. You know, uh, Chuck, you know, it, very touching, very reflective of Stallone. And, yes. uh, yeah, probably made the career of Carl Weathers. I'm sure he would have had a fine acting career, and but Apollo Creed took it to another level. Let's first talk about um, the evolution of Apollo Creed and what Carl Weathers did with this role. You know, first two movies, um, not a likable guy at all, um, especially Rocky II. He, he came out punching in Rocky II. Uh, and he kind of morphed into more of a villain in two than he was in one, which made it a great dichotomy for the second one and really made it more exciting when when Rocky won because Apollo really came out, you know, no holds barred trying to take down Rocky Balboa. But just overall sense, you can't have Rocky if you don't have a good villain, not a good villain, a great villain. So I would say equal success, uh, the, the success of Rocky, equal parts Sylvester Stallone and Carl Weathers. Oh, there's no doubt. Like, let's go over and, and give some thought to all the villains in the Rocky franchise, right? You got uh, you got uh, Mr. T, Clubber yep. Lang. You got yep. uh, uh, you got uh, Dolph Lundgren. Uh, Lugan is uh, Ivan Viger, Ivan Drago. Uh, Drago, right? And then you got uh, Antonio Carver uh, in in Rocky. A lot of them are very good, yeah. But they're sort of one note, right? Yes. They're sort yes. of one note. They're sort of they're sort of like. Uh, you know, menacing villains uh, in in a B movie, in 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 uh, in, in, in sort of uh, in all honesty. Then you got Carl Weathers as Apollo Creed, who brings intangibles to that role, which Stallone probably had no idea how right. good he he was going to be. One, uh, uh, he plays that character uh, is flamboyant. Uh, he's highly intelligent. He's charismatic. Obviously modeled after Muhammad Ali, right? So that's part of it, and he does a real good job. He does an amazing job. Uh, his 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 athleticism is incredible. Looks like a fighter. I mean, yes, looks looks like a fighter. Is a very good actor. That's a ten out of ten. And you know, I texted you last night, and I, I was saying to myself, who got nominated for best supporting actor in 1977 for you know films released in 1976, and it was Burt Young. Uh, in, in Burgess Matters for, for Rocky. And then it was uh, Lawrence Olivier for Marathon Man, Ned Beatty for Network, and then Jason Robots for All the President's Men. What an amazing yeah. category. Burt <laughs> Young winds up winning for Rocky. But you have to say to yourself, Carl Weathers is equally as good as any of those performances uh, in, in that category. I think so. Yeah. Hands down. yeah and uh, obviously, you know, it's a different time too. It's the mid seventies. Uh, African-Americans weren't getting nominated as much. So I would argue if that if Rocky came out 2025 instead of 1970, uh, he'd be six, nominated. Th- he probably would have get nominated right out of the gate just because of the, you know, hypersensitivity Academy voters seem to have all merited uh, uh, performances, all great. Um, and, you know, I also like, some of the scenes in Rocky too, Chip, where he comes off as like, you know, the motivation behind Apollo Creed fighting the second fight um, is actually more realistic than than Rocky himself. Like Rocky himself is almost forced into fighting again because yes. of because of the performance that Carl Weathers gives about, you know, it's his funny pride, because his, his manhood has been crushed. Yes. And it's funny because a lot of people forget Rocky doesn't win the first fight. Um, that yep. bell does come kind of early at the end of the first uh, movie. And I know I remember as a kid, people talking about, hey, what, you know, did, did they fix the fight? What's going on? Did, uh, you know, because back in the day, boxing, you know, there was questions it, as to whether or not uh, champs would automatically win a fight. No matter if it's close, if they don't get knocked out, they're going to win no matter what the did. decision is. And that's so to, to, to use that in Rocky, too, as a motivation of many people thought he won the fight. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. so I need to prove to get back out there. And some of the scenes where, you know, with uh, uh, Tony Burton telling him, I seen this man come out, she would not all. And he's like, let it go. And the look in Creed's eyes and Carl Weathers performance. And when he's talking to his wife, he's like reading letters. And I, I think Rocky too, he actually becomes even more defined as a movie character. And, you know, obviously in the natural arc of movie making Rocky three becomes friends with, with, uh, with Rocky and, and, and we, we actually start liking him and, and, and yes. really become a, there's a bond there, you know, there's that mm-hmm. funny 
beach scene where they're, you know, the bro hug and damning slow motion. I mean, it gets a little bit out of control. And then Rocky Four, his character is way out of control. I thought that the, you know, it just went a little bit too bizarre on how, you know, and then the fact that they killed him off. I was never a fan of that, Chuck, uh, as a plot device, because that's what it seemed like. Um, the guy, you, you know, you know, when Mickey died, it made a little more sense. He was older and sick and frail. To kill right. off an iconic character like that the way they did just for a, you know, rah-rah moment. I, I, it bo- always bothered me because, um, like I said, the importance of Rocky, the movie series, is as much uh, due to Apollo Creed's character as it is for Sylvester Stallone. That's why the post-sequels, uh, Creed, that's why they're so good is because the shadow of Carl Weathers is in those movies. Very valid point and a, and a great point. Um I, I agree. And, and I think, you know, when you look back at that scene in, in, in Rocky four, it's hard. It is hard in retrospect. It is hard to watch because you so respected Carl Weathers work and that character as a character in itself in one of the greatest franchises of all time. But, you know, Stallone started to write that franchise sort of in a soap opera, soap opera type tone, because that's what kept the audience interest. And I'm not knocking that he did that. I thought, you know, the, he maintained incredible interest throughout that uh, franchise. And, 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 you know, if somebody told you in 1976, a movie about a boxer and his foil would stand the test of time. And we'd be talking about it in reverence in 2024, you may not believe it, but that is the reality. And the reality stands because Stallone uh, is a, is a brilliant artist and Carl Weathers, what he brought to the table in this franchise is, is truly iconic. And, and that's not overblown. That is not overblown. No. And he would have a, you know, it's interesting his career early on, he would pop up in movies like force 10 from Navarone and death hunt, all-star casts kind of thing where he's one of the stars. Don't forget his little cameo role. I guess it would become a cameo role because of his popularity in Rocky, but he does have a good scene in close encounters of the third kind. If you blink, you miss it, but he has a good interaction with Richard Dreyfuss in that film. Um, also in semi-tough where he plays his, his, his football, basically his football roots. But, you know, if you think about his movie characters, there's probably three that stand out. And the second one would stand out is Dylan, you know, in predator. And, and, you know, I think, you know, look, Schwarzenegger was popular at the time. This was really the rise of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, he wasn't superstar to out of control just yet. So I think it helped to cast Carl Weathers as someone else to root for in the jungles there against the alien. And his death scene is one of the best scenes in the movie. Oh yeah. And, and you know, that iconic handshake. Yes. With, with Arnold. I mean, still is played to, to, to this, to this day. I mean, that's another one. You John McTiernan. Uh, it's just a great movie. Yeah. That he was and, part of. And uh, Joel Silver would then say, you know what, maybe we can get a franchise for uh, for Carl Weathers. He's getting popular. All the Rocky Rockies done with the Rocky movies. He did four. He did Predator. Let's get his own action vehicle. Look, Action Jackson came out in 1988, and I'm sure they thought they'd make Action Jackson two, three, four and five. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, you had Sharon Stone and Vanity co-stars. Uh, it's, it's splashy. It's a Joel, you know, just feels like a Joel silver movie. He's got a good villain in Craig T Nelson, but something yeah. just didn't work in this film. Chuck, I like it, but there's something missing. I, it, it has a really good poster. I'll give it that. You know, I remember going <laughs> to see, I, I, I remember going to see it opening weekend and there is something missing. I haven't seen it in quite some time. I think, I think the issue with the film is. I think they played his cat. I think the character that was written for him was not exactly right for him. Right. right. Uh, I, I right. think, I think that's the issue. He's not giving, I think the strength of who Carl Weathers was, was not defined in that script. And I think that's why you never seen any sequels materialize. I think it had a so-so box office. Uh, it's mostly forgotten despite the fact it has a pretty good cast and, uh, and yeah. it's well-produced. And is well, highly produced. And it's interesting, too, if you watched on social media after his passing, there's a whole generation, Apollo Creed, Apollo Creed, Apollo Creed. But there's another generation, Chuck, that remembered him as Chubbs from the Happy Gilmore film. And he played he'd reprised that role again a couple more times in, for Adam Sandler. But, you know, it's funny. 
he's got two really iconic roles. Uh, you know, for a lot of people, Chubbs was what came up first and not Apollo Creed. And that's only age determining that. But Happy Gilmore mm-hmm. is a very funny movie and he is very funny in it. Listen, anytime any actor is part of a project that it, that lives on generationally, that's a super cool thing. And they all acknowledge that and they respect that and they're very happy for it. And that's one of those projects that all those things apply. And one of his last notable movie roles, in fact, his last role was his voice in, as Combat Carl in Toy Story 4, which is very, very good. But let's not forget some of his TV work he did. He had that syndicated hit, Street Justice, that lasted a couple of seasons. Remember, he was in the heat of the night. He was Chief Hampton right. Forbes on that show uh, for a right. little while. I think he did a handful of 28 episodes or so. Very funny on Arrested Development, playing himself, uh, an acting coach. Uh, hysterical uh, on Arrested Development, and I believe he pops up on the Chicago series, right? He was in PD and Justice, one of those. I, I can't keep track of those Chicago shows, but I believe he was on that. And then, of course, the last four or five years, uh, griefed Karga. I mean, uh, the Mandalorian. He was very important in the in those in that in that show. Uh, in fact, he was uh, nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for Guest Actor. Ten episodes, very good. Uh, some real good uh, ep- uh, scenes with. Him in the Mandalorian, I, I, I th- you know that that's a blow to that series, Chuck, losing him uh, because his character is very good on that show. You know, I read a, 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 an an interview uh, yesterday that uh, uh, John Favreau gave, and you know he's a huge fan of, of Carl Weathers. I guess he's a huge Apollo Creed fan, and you know that's one of the reasons he cast him because he he had a lot of respect for who he was, both as a person and as an actor. And it's always good, really good to hear, you know, the 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 uh, the, the fan base and, and his peers coming out to speak so highly of him. You know, when we both saw that, we texted each other that he passed. And my first reaction, in all honesty, is he's just way too young and healthy. How did that happen? You know, yeah. but the reality of the reality of us being physical beings, you know, we deal with this all the there's time. An ex- uh, there's an expiration date on every single one of us, uh, Chip, uh, Chuck. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right. Well, uh, we remember him fondly, of course, and and he'll live on in all these movies on celluloid. But let's uh, let's uh, set up these two interviews you have here. We're going to start with the uh, headliner here, Eli Roth, um, and 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 uh, take us through uh, later on. Just set up both interviews. You've got uh, Eli Roth and uh, and uh, Lauren Balf. Uh, what do we got here? I think they're both really good in terms of Eli. Uh, you know, I could have spoke to him for hours on end. We did 18 minutes. He was very thought provoking guy, a good guy, very informative talks about Thanksgiving. I asked him a question I wanted to ask him. And I asked him about this, this specific incident of what happened with roadhouse, not going theatrical to straight to stream. And he gave me some great insight and answers on what he thinks about the industry. He's a big advocate of the theatrical model so i got some really good stuff out of him on that and in terms of lawn balf he's a composer to uh the new movie Algal with his theaters this weekend he also composed or helped compose mike the uh, music uh in in the the score to one of the biggest movies of all time top gun maverick he gave me his his in, insight of how he got started in his apprenticeship with han zimmer great great guy so these are really two good interviews i think the audience is going to have a good time listening to eli roth director actor screenwriter eli currently doing the rounds promoting the digital digital and blu-ray release of his uh slasher film thanksgiving which came out last november eli also known for movies like cabin fever hostel uh the green inferno and also co-starred opposite brad pitt in glorious bastards eli welcome to the program pleasure to speak to you great to be here chuck thanks for having me on you got it. Uh, now, normally I don't talk about box office that much with a, an actor or director, but in this case, I'm gonna. This movie opened in uh, November. Uh, it came out to good reviews, really good uh, notices by the audience that went to see it. From what I read, it was produced for around 14, film, 14 $15 million, and is currently done at this point $46 million worldwide. Uh, I re- read it, or I watched an interview that you did, said you had a blast and a great time shooting this film. What does it feel like to shoot a movie, have a great time 
do it for primarily a low budget and have it financially viable already before it's digital and Blu-ray release. Can you expand on that? It is a very, look, it's a wonderful feeling when it all comes together and it's very rare because all you can control is the product. All, all I can control is the part, you know, where I make the movie and I do the best I can. I put my like life, blood, sweat and tears into it. I want to, I want to give people the best night of, at the movies that they've had in years. But you just don't know. You don't know if people are going to go out and see it. Um, and thankfully, people, you know, especially with a new movie and a new mythology and a new killer and all of those things, and people were so ready for something new, and they came out and supported it. And, you know, look, sometimes the critics are with you, and sometimes they're against you, and they rip you a new one. And thankfully, they mm-hmm. look, we're 84% Rotten Tomatoes, the best-reviewed film of my career. It's the only one I've ever had that's fresh. Normally, my films are either love it or hate it, but... This one generally everybody loved it. Um, it had we had a great time, and crazily they re-released it nationwide in 500 theaters at late shows. It's in theaters now. I, I saw that. It. They did I saw it last that. weekend. So the first time in my life I've ever had a movie that's you know coming out on DVD and Blu-ray and getting a wide theatrical release. You know, but people love it. They've come out and they were just people are seeing it again and again. They're so into it. We had a fantastic cast, um, but it's rare. It's it's rare. Look, you know, I, I, we, we had really good energy on this one. Everyone was doing it for the right reasons. It went very fast. We were shooting it in March, April, you know, it was cutting all summer, and it was in theaters in November, and here we are. It just was like a, it took off like a bullet, and, and thankfully people enjoyed it and came out to see it, and now we're lucky enough we get to do another one. Yeah, so you are, you this movie designed as a franchise uh, when you uh, put it into production? You always have a sequel in the back of your mind when you make a horror film, and that's sort of what people buy into is they go, well, it's just, you know, they're looking at Scream 6, you know, six making $150 million and Halloween going. So anyone who's going to invest in a horror movie is going, can we do a sequel or do you have an idea? I worry that, you know, if you start thinking about the sequel while you're making the first one, you're dead. Like, I, I go, okay, guys, I'm sure there's a million ways you can go into a sequel, but the only thing I'm thinking of is the first one. It's got to be great, and it's got to make money, enough money that everyone feels good and wants to do another one, um, which is what happened. But, yeah, you're, you're thinking about it in the back of your mind, but I, I always find if you get too kind of caught up in the, in the sequel idea, then, you know, you're, you're dead in the water. But when people, you know, when Sony releases it and invests it, everyone is hoping that the movie turns into a franchise for sure. Especially now, how are you as a director, how do you have the ability to shoot movies for, I'll give you an example. When I, I remember when I went, went to see Hostel in a, in a theater, and I know mm-hmm. I read the production budget was like four or five million dollars, and I say to myself, this movie looks, million. yeah, this movie looks like a $30 million film. Like it's a flawless production. Mm-hmm. It, looks, okay. it, looks, it looks great, a high production value for a lower budget. How are you able to do that? Well, I worked on movies for a long time. You know, everyone thinks, I've watched a lot of movies, I can direct a movie, but I was the guy getting coffee. I did budgets, I did schedules, I was a production assistant for 10 years on movie sets, and I watched. And I said, why do you need 30 trailers? And I said, why is this guy doing 100 takes? And I'm saying, why do you have all these extra crew members that aren't doing anything? Do you need any of this? Like, is this making the movie better? And so when you watch directors, when you learn it from the ground up, and going to film school, and I looked at my heroes, it's Sam Raimi and John Carpenter and Toby Hooper and Wes Craven, the movies I love, and I go, what's the difference? And I was like, okay, we can, you know, find a DP like Milan Khadama, who shot Thanksgiving, to shoot Hostel. He shot Second Unit on Brothers Grimm. He's an amazing DP, but, you know, he's going to give it this incredible, you know, he's shooting like this is his shot to make it great. And the, and the production value, I have been an artistic guy where I can walk around the city and go, what if we just put the camera here, and then we can do that, and look at this background. You know, I, I went onto location. You know, in the Green Inferno, I get on a boat, and I go farther than anyone has ever taken a film crew into the Amazon to shoot a movie, and you look around, and anywhere you point the camera, it looks good. So it's just, I understand how to put something in front of the lens to make it look great, and I, I watch other movies, and I see where there's so much bloat, and there's so much waste that, you know, if you... But you can only understand that when you start from the ground up being the person getting coffee and looking at where people are spending their money and where they're not spending it. Um, and also, I'm ruthlessly efficient. You know, that 
opening riot in Thanksgiving. I shot it in four nights, two nights outside, two nights inside. I planned, you know, I planned the hell out of it down to the last detail. And that just kind of comes from years of experience and being like, you know, a ruthless producer going, we're only spending money on what goes in front of the screen. Understood. On the line with uh, Eli Roth, director of the uh, slasher film Thanksgiving, which currently is in digital and, and Blu-ray, and also in 500 theaters nationwide. Uh, uh, good, good, good point about that opening scene in, in Thanksgiving. How did you shoot that shopping uh, mart scene? How did you do that safely? I mean, when I watched that, I was like, like on the edge of my seat, you know, thinking, how did people not get hurt? How did you do that safely? Well, I was in the edge of my seat making it. I mean, first, we have an amazing stunt coordinator and assistant director. And, you know, and, and you say to them, if anyone gets hurt, it's like nothing is worth, you know, accidents happen, but you really have mm-hmm. to plan it so that everyone is safe. Um, and sort of going through, these are where the stunt people are going to go. And I, I worked with a crowd. Look, we were shooting in, in Toronto and Hamilton where people were exceptionally nice. They bumped into stories, stories. So you're, you're dealing with kind of a generally very polite culture anyways. And I, and I talked to them before. I was like, I want, we all, I was like, everyone in the scene, these aren't like, these are the stars, these are the extras. These are like, no, 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 no. We're all in the scene together. We're all team partners. Look to the person to your left, look to the person to your right. These are your team partners. We're all going to be acting for four nights together, and we're going to have to do this over and over. So if someone falls down, you pick them up. You make sure, are you okay? All right, we're all going to bump into each other. Are you safe? Do you feel comfortable with that? Like, you talk about it. And I had different levels. I was like, okay, if there's one to 10, you guys are about a seven at this moment. Okay. Now this shot, I kind of need you at a four. We are starting to get a little annoyed. And then you yell cut and everyone's laughing and everyone has a smile on their face. And you know, you bond very quickly and everyone gets to know each other and everyone is friends. And it's just also my personality kind of being in there with everybody, showing them, demonstrating, saying, what are you comfortable with? And having our stunt coordinator, Dan Skeen, really suss out who's the best listener, who can do stuff, who needs padding, you know, just kind of working through that and like, okay, you're going to do this, you're going to do it. And then keeping it just being very, very surgical about how you approach it. But, you know, you're shooting with 600 people, shooting a riot scene, and you just have to, you know, hope everything worked out. And thankfully it did. We had a great crew, a great cast, but that is one of those things you really don't know until you actually do it. And I was watching there, being in the middle of it, you felt you're like, wow, this is, this looks terrifying. And then you cut and everyone has a smile on their face. We're all, you okay? You okay? Great. Everyone's good. We, we, the extra set, it was the most fun they've ever had filming anything. That's really cool. Tell me about uh, how you put the cast together. I'll tell you a quick story. The lead actress uh, who you have in this film as a, as a central uh, star. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I saw her. Me and my, my daughter plays high school basketball, so we watched oh, you watch the Disney shot. Plus. Yeah, and I got to tell you, I love that show. I, I, I was sort of bummed when it, when it was canceled. So when I initially saw the trailer to Thanksgiving and I saw her, I said, I know that girl. I know that girl. And then it popped in my head that she was in Big Shot uh, with John Stamos on the Disney. But how did how why why what, what was it about her that you said, OK, th- this is this is my this is my central player. In, in this in the, in this film, you know, the, among the young cast, you need a great final girl to hang the movie on because we're seeing the movie through her eyes. And Nell has this incredible yes. natural like ability. She is like a young Julia Roberts. She's so real and she's so sweet and she's such a good actor. Um, she went to high school performing arts. Her father's an actor and an acting teacher, and she is a real. I mean, this girl could be Natalie Portman, Jennifer Lawrence, but she has Julia Roberts. If she has. She has those levels. And I saw it when I cast wow. Cammie Marone in Death Wish. And I saw mm-hmm. it when I cast Anna de Armas in her first English language movie in Knock Knock. And I see it with Nell. She has it. And she's That's great. that good. And I knew I could anchor the film around her. And I knew I could pair her with Patrick Dempsey, who is a superb actor um, and so, so good. And you could, and with Rick Hoffman from Suits, and really put her with Gina Gershon, just put her with all these other actors. Um, and you knew she was going to not just hold her own, but really, really shine. And also pairing her with Milo Mannheim, who's such a terrific young actor, and someone like Addison Ray, who's out to prove herself as an actor. You know, everyone knows her from TikTok, and she's really, really great. Right. So brings this kind of life and fun and realness. And I wanted new faces. I, you know, in the script, I think it said Jessica's a girl who doesn't realize she does not yet realize she's the most beautiful girl in school. That she has, and that's that's 
now. She has wow. this natural beauty to her, and she's so sweet and so smart. Um, but pairing her with, you know, Gabriel Davenport, who plays Scuba, who kind of emerges as this heroic character, and Jenna Warren and Jalen Thomas Brooks, like, it was an incredible mix. They were such talented actors, and it's, that's the fun, is bringing new faces. Like, maybe you've been big shot, or maybe you haven't, but there's no preconceived notions. You're just watching her and seeing the movie through her eyes. Um, and, you know, there's there's no bad shots of her. You put the clothes up on now, she smiles, it lights up the screen, but... I just, you know, you just, as a director, you just have that sense. Even when we're making the sequel to Last Exorcism, which was written by Damien Chazelle and has Julia mm-hmm. Garner in it, you're like, okay. This, you know, Caleb Landry-Jones from Last Exorcism, which I'm producing, or even when I produced and did uh, Man with the Iron Fists, which I wrote and produced with Rizzo, with Dave Batista right. in it, and we're like, okay, but Batista's popping. Like, you knew, you knew he's going to be a huge star. So it's, it's great. Like, yeah, you really just good. have that sense about those people. Um, and I have that sense with Neil, and it's it's great to see audiences respond to it. She just has that likability. That's awesome. You clearly got a, a great sense of uh, talent. On the line with Eli Roth, director of Thanksgiving, which is currently on uh, digital and Blu-ray and also in 500 theaters nationwide. I, I got to ask you this question, uh, why I got you on the line. It was a, in, uh, would like your honest opinion about this. There was a story in the industry that I talked about last week that I think is a big story. And it was uh, directed Doug Lehman uh, is going to boycott his redo of Roadhouse at a, at a uh, theatrical premiere because Amazon Prime is going to take that movie and, and stream it only, not release it in theaters. Give me your thoughts. You don't have to be specific on that, but give me your thoughts in general on how movies are seen uh, now, how they will be seen in 10 years. Versus, give me like an example. You could go on YouTube, Eli, and watch people stand around city blocks in 1973 waiting online to get into The Exorcist. It was a cultural phenomenon, and it was part of our pop culture. I remember growing up. I was I was I was too young to see it in the theater, but I remember people, uh, friends or bro- uh, and their brothers who were older, going to see that movie, having psychological issues, having to go see a psychiatrist. It was just crazy back then. The impact that that movie had on a culture was enormous. My question to you is, what what do you think about streaming for movies for movies, not TV shows, from for for movies that should play in theaters that get owning a streaming release? And where do you think the industry is going to go in five to ten years, theatrically versus streaming? Expand on those. Give me your thoughts on that stuff. I mean, I can't comment on Doug Lyman's situation. Um, I'm not in right. it. And understood. So no, I, understood. I understood. I, I completely feel his frustration, though. I mean, you can't bait and switch a director. You can't say, like, oh, this is going to be for theaters, and then it's just suddenly put on streaming, and you have no say in the matter. Like, that's that's incredibly frustrating when that happens. Um, and yeah, I but, mean, you know, I, I guess, I, but I guess my point. You're, yeah, go ahead. Tell you something. You're making. You're making. I, I, he made a deal with MGM, and they got bought by Amazon. But this is the risk right. when you're getting the deal with these technical companies. You are making a deal with the devil. I understand that Doug Lyman did not make that deal. He made a deal with MGM, and MGM got acquired. But this is the game we're all in right now. None of us know what's going to happen. That these tech streamers are acquiring everything. And they have different agendas. And I think that when you make a movie for a streamer, you are serving that streamer. You are serving Apple. You are serving Netflix. You're serving Amazon. I know that this is not the case, that he did not intentionally do that, and that the movie got acquired. But that's, that's the way it goes. That's the world we're in right now. So I was very, very, very lucky. And we made a very conscious decision to make this movie for theaters. And we took a shot. And thank God there's Sony out there. And I'm very, very thankful for Sony for giving people the audience experience. But it's my job as a director to make sure that I give that audience the best night of their life at the movies. That I respect their time and I respect their money. And when they're paying that money and taking that time, getting a babysitter and getting out of the house and doing this, I want to deliver a great memory the way you would when you see a great sports event or a great concert. You know, it's, it's something you can see with an audience in a screen, but it's a great night of your life. It's a, a classic memory that you're creating. So... That's what I try to give audiences, and people know that I, I really you know, care about delivering that in all my films. So I think that audiences will always want that, you know, whether it's being out. People want to get out of the house. They want that collective I hope so. experience. They need to take a break from their lives. Yeah, people do. I mean, it's, it's the same thing we heard with, you know, television is going to stop movies, or you got to have this, you got to have that. But, and we understand, oh, the cell phones are going to stop movies. 
people love to go out to the theater and be part of a cultural event. I don't believe you can be a cultural event as a movie with a streamer. I think the only way to be a cultural event, I think you can do it with a TV show. You can have Stranger Things. You can have The Crown. You can have you can have a cultural moment with the Jinks. Like that, television can yes. definitely do it. Chuck, but if you're making angry. a movie, there was an article in the New York Times that said, you know, Red Notice is the biggest movie ever on Netflix, and it's as if it never existed. If you don't subscribe to that streamer, the movie doesn't exist. And when you're making a movie for a streamer, it, even if it's in theaters, you don't have the responsibility of making a movie that makes its money back. You just don't, and you're going to make a different film, and you're going to make different decisions. So, yeah, some maybe some people can indulge and make great projects and make the movie, but when Christopher Nolan makes Oppenheimer and he makes it for theaters, he lives or dies by the box office. And that affects every decision you make, and you're going to make the greatest movie of your career when you live or die by the box office. Chuck, and Tarantino's the same way, and I'm the same way. If, if Thanksgiving isn't the greatest movie I've ever made, my career dies. And you need that pressure. You need that pressure to make greatness. Understood. Eli, thanks for your time. For people listening, go check out Thanksgiving Digital Blu-ray 500 Theaters. Eli, best of luck in all future endeavors. Thank you very much. This is Chuck Curry. Uh, you're listening to my interview with Lorne Balfi, the musical composer of the new film Argyle, directed by Matthew Vaughn. Today, a very special guest Emmy and Grammy winner Lorne Balfi, who's also a very, very successful and talented composer of major motion pictures such as The Florida Project, Terminator Genesis, Black Adam, Black Widow, Mission Impossible Fallout, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, and uh, helped compose the score of one of the most successful movies of all time, Top Gun Maverick. Now, combined, the scores that Lorne has done for motion pictures have grossed more than $9 billion at the box office. Lauren currently doing the rounds promoting his score and the new movie directed by Matthew Vaughn titled Argyle, which hits theaters this weekend. Lauren, welcome to the program. Pleasure to have you on. I tell you, I get quite intimidated when you give me those, those box office numbers. Uh, I, should be, I feel I should be working harder. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my first question, uh, I'm going to bounce into this. When I see a, uh, a, a draft or I see a lion, or I watch a movie with amazing musical score, it sort of makes me think that there has to be a creator or a higher power to give those things such beauty. My first question to you would be, how do you get this amazing gift to compose music and do it in feature films? I, I wish any of us had the answer. I, I, I think that I don't know why some people can write a memorable song and others can't. I, I do sometimes think it's luck of the draw. Um, you can't learn it. You can't go to university or college and learn how to write um, a, a, a great theme or a great song. So there has to be something. I, I, I get it from inspiration, personally. I'm, I'm, who, is, I who inspired um, you? Well, the, the films. If, if, if the film doesn't inspire you, then you can't write music for it. Or, or at least you can't write anything good, I think. Um, so, and, that, and that's really, that's the kind of the, the, the job. And I think it's the same with songwriting. That's why so many songs are, are based on people or based on people's stories. You've got to have something as inspiration. And from, from me, the inspiration comes from those characters um, that I'm seeing and that I'm, uh, and I'm investing in. But, but in regards to how you do it, I, goodness knows. I don't think anybody will ever answer that. Here, so here's, my, here, here's another question. You get the gig for Argyle. Matthew Vaughn says, okay, you're the guy that I trust to do the score to this film. And you say, I agree, let's do this. <laughs> Give me the A to Z timeline of how you mentally prepare yourself what do you do? Do you, do, you, do, you look at the, do you look at the film before you write the score? Do you storyboard? Do you have massive conversations with the director of the film? Tell, give, give us an idea how this all works. You, well, we'll talk about Argyle because every single project is always different. Every movie is different. Um, sometimes you're, you're starting on it years in advance. Other times you're starting on it three weeks before it ends. So it really mm. is a different situation for everything. But with this, 
with Argyle, we started three and a half years ago. I started writing Matthew Loves Music. Uh, music's very essential to him. Song choices are essential to him. And the school, um, to, to uh, Matthew's movies, have always been very iconic. So, so we started talking about the main character, um, Ellie Conway. Uh, we started talking about Argyle and started writing themes. Um, read, read the script and then they started filming. And, of course, then the music starts changing because the script slightly changes and the, uh, the, the performances change the way that you feel and connect with these characters. So it's, it's about a journey, but mainly it's about trying to understand who these people are and what their story is. On the line with uh, musical composer Lorne, Balfi, who currently composed the music for uh, Matthew Vaughan's new f film, Argyle. Well, let me ask you, uh, were you a movie fan as a kid? Tell us about your, your childhood. I know I, I read an excerpt that said you used to write letters to different uh, composers that you liked their work. Tell us, tell us about your childhood and uh, your letter writing campaign as a young kid to uh, different popular composers that uh, you enjoyed. Yeah, my, my, my memories of being a child is, is great music on the radio and going to the cinema. And that was my life. And, and, and those experiences going to the cinema are the same. I still watch those movies. I'd go and watch, watch Superman. I'd watch Star Wars. I'd watch Jerry Bruckheimer movies like Crimson Tide and The Rock and Conair, all these movies are what I enjoyed and what I regarded as, as escapism in the cinema. So that, that is what got me into wanting to get into um, music. I, I wasn't too sure what exactly I wanted to do with music, but I just knew that I loved film and I loved storytelling. And, and people like Jerry and people like Hans Zimmer were those people that created things that I just absolutely adored. So I, I ended up writing a letter to, to Hans asking for a job, and I ended up going over to L.A. as a T-boy. Um, not a very good T-boy. Um, burnt many a bagel and burnt the coffee, but, but that was how I, kind of, <laughs> I, I started, was going over there, and, and that was the beginning of the journey. I, I read that uh, part of the musical arrangements uh, arrangement in this movie Argyle uh, is based on a, a Beatles song now and then am I, am I correct in that assessment absolutely we were we were very very lucky um, that Giles Martin who's an integral part of uh, of the next path and journey of the Beatles um, is great friends with Matthew Vaughan and um, and we were able to incorporate now and then before it was ever released into the film and and integrate it into it so it's actually become part of ellie conway's um musical backstory so it's it's very essential to her so being able to then uh, put that theme and weave it into the soundtrack has been very unique and also a, a kind of a pinch a pinchy moment you know this is nobody had heard this song when we were working on it it was, a, it was a secret. So we were very lucky to be able to have that as part of our storytelling. Now, let me ask you this. Have you seen Argyle, the finished product, in a movie theater? Or ha have you watched it yet? Oh, yes. Yes, several now, times. Now, 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 here's the thing. When, 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 you wa when you watch this movie or any movie that you uh, compose, and you're also one of the composers on one of the biggest movies of all time, which is Top Gun Maverick. When you sit in a the theater, let's go just specifically on Argyle, because that's what we're promoting when you're watching that movie and you hear your score like do you reflect like when you're reflecting on that tell me what goes through your mind uh, fr from the beginning of the film to the end when you're watching the finish you're going i wish that could have been a bit louder i wish that could have been uh, -huh. uh a, a bit better i wish i could have done that better i think i i think that's the main thing you uh, you wish you had more time that's what it comes down to a lot of the time i i i uh I don't really tend to go and uh, and sit for. Uh, I'll I'll see it when we're testing it and when we're working on it in the cinema. But then I have to kind of put it to bed because 
you'd 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 only get frustrated because you you you'll look at certain things and I always say I wish I'd tried something here or I wish I could had a bit more time to to perfect this. So I think to me, I just have to leave it. Understood. On the line with Lauren. Balfi, musical composer who composed the score to uh, Matthew Vaughn's new movie, Argyle, which is theaters this uh, weekend. What give a real quick, just bounce off questions. Uh, your first big break that you said, okay, this is a break I needed. What was it in, in your career? Making those, burning those bagels. I'm making coffee. <laughs> now, who, 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 tell me about your working relationship with Hans Zimmer. Well, I, I, I worked, I worked, I, I was very fortunate to become, um, to work for Hans for over 15 years. It was, it was a long, a long apprenticeship. And Hans has always been very good at um, encouraging new talent, discovering talent, nurturing them. And, um, and really, if it, if it wasn't for him, I, I I know I wouldn't be here. He he introduced me to to my relationship with Michael Bay and Jerry Bruckheimer, and um, that really that was that was my break, being able to learn and watch Hans during the most important time of his career. Got you. Now I'll I'll tell you a couple of my favorite scores in film. I'm a, I've been doing this spot for thirty years. I love film. I understand the importance of musical composition in a movie. Give you an example. Elmer Bernstein, his score to The Ten Commandments, and then The Great oh, Escape, yes. which is one of my all-time favorite movies in 1963. Anything John Williams has ever done, you know, Superman, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Hook. Without John Williams, you know, Steven Spielberg would only be half a talent. And I say that in the most kind, kindest of ways. You know, I look at Tim Burton's Batman from 1989, and oh, despite the okay. fact that I feel the movie's a little flawed, I love it. And the, one of the reasons that I think that movie's elevated to such a high level is because Danny Elfman created one of the most majestic all-time iconic scores in the history of motion pictures. And I'll tell you one more. There's a score to a movie called The Omega Man in 1971 with Charlton oh, yeah. Heston, a guy named, a guy named yeah. Ron Granger who is a TV composer, I think that was the only time he got a chance to compose a movie. That is one of the most interesting, fascinated, fascinating scores I, I've ever heard. you have thoughts on that stuff? Uh, yeah, well, look, I think that uh, Edward Scissorhands, I think, mm -hmm. uh, again, for Danny's school, was um, made you connect to these characters. If you didn't have right. that emotional score, I don't think that you could you could have felt anything for for somebody with with scissors as their hands. And and his score has stood the, the you know time now. That music is used in commercials and it's a standalone. Like I think everything that you said um, is about. Uh, they've all kind of had another career that those pieces of music outside cinema, which is, which is, mm -hmm. which is very rare. You know, you can go to concerts and hear music by John Williams uh, where they'll play Harry Potter and you don't need to see the film. Um, it's, it's, it's a very unique, it's a very new, unique thing that, um, and, um, and I think it's that also, it's a great relationship working with, um, Directors, you know, Burton and Elfman have had a. Uh, it's the same as um, Herman and Hitchcock. A very yes, strong yes, connection. yeah. Now, now tell us about your future work. I know you did the score to Beverly Hills Cop, Axel Foley, and you did the score to the newest Bad Boy, Boy movies, which will come out this year. What was your experience on those two films? Those. Well, I'm still working on them. I'm still working okay. on them. So, so. So it's um, but both of those films are are the films that I was brought up watching. You know, I, I think it's it's um, that the original Beverly Hills Cop, the Axel S theme, um, is one of the most iconic themes yes. out there. It, it, it's something yep. that I know that I it was I think my memory tells me it was one of the first things I learned how to play on the piano. Okay. Um, okay. And, I, and I, I couldn't really play it very well, but I just remember everybody would 
stand around this out of tune piano, all trying to kind of figure out how to play these black. And um, I, I, I got to tell you, Lauren, I, I got my fi- I got my fingers crossed. I'm really hoping that, that uh, Beverly Hills Cop Foley's a really good film because when I sat in a movie theater in 1984. That was one of the greatest audience participation movies I've ever seen. I mean, the audience absolutely adored that film, yelling and hooping up at the screen. I think I saw that like nine times in a movie theater. It was that cathartic of, uh, of an entertaining motion picture. I got to tell you, it's a pleasure to speak to you. I wish you the best of luck. Lorne Balfi, uh, who composed the score to the new movie, Argyle, directed by Matthew Vaughn, starring Henry Cavall, hits theaters this Friday. All the best in future endeavors, Lorne. A pleasure. A real pleasure, Chuck. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Movie Moments with Chuck Curry and Mike Rags. Download and listen to an archive show or be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts to hear our new episodes.